I have a connection with the country and people of Burma that's a couple of decades uh, or more uh, old. And I, I often spend some time every winter in that uh, country. I go there, I've done a lot of practice there, lived in uh, the robes, bhikkhu's robes there for periods of time. And, um, and lately, and well, for quite a few years now, I've been working with some uh, small aid projects. Uh, and when I think of that country and, and the images that come into my mind, seem to always include images of the nuns there. They're a part of the landscape and they stand out in part because the, the robes they wear are um, flowery color, pink and peach colored and light colors. They don't wear the brown robes that we're used to. Uh, for the most part, some do. So they stand out in that way, but they stand out to me much more um, in the source of inspiration that they provide for me and have for so many years now. They, have, they live with such uh, humility and grace and uh, this quiet, profound faith. This uh, afternoon I was thinking about this talk and uh, was able to watch a, a short film that someone I know made about the, the life of the nuns, and it was um, based in a, a nunnery that I've, I've known the people there for 20 years or more now. So I was seeing all my friends, uh, and it brought, actually brought tears to my eyes to uh, see them in this film and hear their voices and, um, and think of them. So we, one of the projects I work with, we support mostly small nunneries, uh, over 40 of them in the, uh, some all over the country, but mainly in the outskirts of Rangoon, some in the Sagaing Hills in the north, which is where the, the nunnery I just mentioned is. And um, it's been so amazing. We, we offer uh, ongoing but modest support to many of these nuns, but so many of them as soon as they have anything extra, they, they take in orphans or they will start a school. There are, are now a number of schools in these very poor neighborhoods where there, there are not schools and the, the children there are too poor to travel to and go to a government school. So they are now learning to read and getting an education that they would not have gotten. And these schools were started by some of the nuns that we have been supported, been supporting. And it's not easy for them. They, there's a, a great uh, inequity in the uh, way the nuns and the monks, uh, the support they receive, it's not uh, the same and life is harder for the nuns there. Um, there are signs of some change in that regard, but it's, um, it's a very uh, profound and true fact that is, uh, needs to be acknowledged uh, when thinking of these these people and the lives that they live. A few years ago, when I was at uh, the Insight Meditation Society, I had the opportunity to, and good fortune, to meet a Sri Lankan nun, Bikuni, uh, named uh, Kusuma, Bikuni Kusuma. And she's the, a fully ordained Buddhist nun, which is uh, 
not been happening until quite recently for a long period of time. It's said that the the lineage of the bhikkhunis that were around at the time of the Buddha, that that lineage was broken. And um, in most, in all the Buddhist countries, there have not been fully ordained nuns for a long time. Uh, she was the first woman in Sri Lanka to take full ordination in uh, around 1,000 years, actually. And um, she was a wonderful person to meet and very um, amazing energy. She had done a lot of research uh, uh, to show that the bhikkhuni lineage actually hadn't died out but had traveled across Asia, and she'd traveled a lot. And she's... Um, I believe she has a PhD. Do you remember Joseph? I think she has she has a PhD among other things and really pioneering the reestablishment of the bhikkhuni order, which is different. The the nuns I know in Burma, they have 8 or 10 precepts rather than the 330 some that the full uh the fully ordained bhikkhunis have and it's a different um a different very different um status and um, undertaking of renunciation. And she said at one point, she she was worried that it would be very, very difficult. And she said to herself and to others, if I have to give up my life in order to do this, then I will do that. It's okay. So I'm dedicating tonight's talk to uh, the uh, bhikkhuni lineage, to the nuns over the years who have played uh, an incredible role in preserving these teachings. We have these teachings because of the ordained Sangha uh, from the time of the Buddha. They memorized them for two or three hundred years after the Buddha died and um, before anything was written down. And to me, the nuns, especially in Burma, because that's the place I'm most familiar with, they exemplify... um, the qualities of the Sangha, which are um, chanted daily in the, in the monasteries and the nunneries. And I'm going to chant um, a portion of that right now because um, these, these uh, remarkable women exemplify these qualities to me um, more, than, more than anyone else. Some of you may have heard this. I'm going to do alternating Pali and English. It's pretty short. You can take it even if you don't like chanting. Handamayam sangabituting karomase Now let us chant in praise of the sangha Yoso supatipano bhagavato savaka sangho they are the blessed one's disciples who have practiced well. Ujupatipano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango, who have practiced directly. Nyaya Patipano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango, who have practiced insightfully. Samichi Patipano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango, those who practice with integrity, Yadidang Chatari Purisa Yugani, Atta Purisa Pugala, that is the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings, Esa Bhagavato Sawaka Sango, these are the blessed one's disciples, Ahuneyo, such ones are worthy of gifts, 
Pahunayo, worthy of hospitality, Dakinayo, worthy of offerings, Anjali Karaniyo, worthy of respect, Anutarang Punyaketang Lokasa. They give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. So when we think of history, it is just that, it is a story. And often stories and facts are different from one another. And much of the time, history is his story. But there also are her stories. And I'm going to tell a few of those tonight. Because these voices are not heard quite as often. In the Pali text of the Pali Canon, that collection of teachings, there is uh, one small uh, collection called the Terigatta. Uh, Literally, that means uh, verses of the elder. Teri means female elder. There is also a Teragatta. So it's, and Gatta is a verse or a a poem. So the Terigatta is a collection of poems, and they're very ancient. They're from the time of the Buddha. And I love them for their um, simplicity and direct honesty, and they feel to me that they come straight from the heart in a beautiful way. And sometimes these verses and poems have a flavor of being kind of enlightenment poems. And uh, some of them um, have clear descriptions of the moment of awakening that uh, was uh, the experience of the women who wrote them. And they recount their struggles and uh, challenges and realizations along the path. And, and we can see how much they're like our own. They're walking the same path. They're practicing the same teachings. We are that they did. And there are a number of translations Uh, I'm using tonight a translation called The First Buddhist Women by Susan Murcott. Um, And from these uh, poems and from other sources in the Pali Canon, we can get some stories about the lives of these women. And they have become somewhat formulaic and kind of like teaching fables over the years uh, in some ways. But um, there is... um, they, they trace back to uh, some true uh, realities and it makes it, um, brings it into a place where we realize these were, there were real people <laughs> like we are practicing and, um, and they give us, maybe a limited, but they give us a glimpse into that time and place and they hook us into this lineage, this flow uh, over time that we're part of. And they had their challenges, as I said, their joys and sorrows and failures and successes. And um, they're in it, for me at least, they're a very inspiring reminder of our own potential as we follow in their footsteps. Once long ago, there was a town. At that time, it was probably seen and uh, felt to be a city. And it was named Kapilavatu. And some say that that place was named after a great famous hermit named Kapila, because Kapilavatu means Kapila's ground or Kapila's place. Uh, 
And nowadays, few are those who even have heard the name of Kapila or Kapilavattu. And scholars and historians don't even agree where that place actually was. The exact location is not known. Some say it's here, some say it was over there. But it's very likely that it was within sight of the great Himalayas, somewhere in the northern part of what is now India, or the southern part of what is now Nepal. And at the time of the Buddha, and before him, that area was the capital of a, of a region that was ruled by a clan called the Sakyans. And that was the, things were divided up uh, uh, into uh, clan affiliations and the governance was based on that. And in Kapilavatu, there was a queen. She was the wife to the chieftain of the clan of the Sakyans and her name was Pajapati. And she and her sister Maya had been born into the Kolian clan, which was nearby, a neighboring kingdom. And when they were still quite young, they were married to the king, Sudodana of the Sakyans, and they moved there to Kapilavatu. Maya was the older of the two. And when she was grown to adulthood, to maturity, uh, she became pregnant. And um, as her pregnancy drew to the time of giving birth, she traveled, uh, wanted to travel to her family home to give birth. And en route, she went into labor at, um, and gave birth in a, a pleasant uh, rest spot, wayside along the way called the Lumbini Garden. And about seven days after giving birth, she suddenly died and her younger sister, Pajapati, uh, then took the newborn child and raised him as her own son. Later, she had two of her own children and this baby boy was given the name Siddhartha, which means one who achieves his aim. And most of us, maybe all of us in this hall have heard that name. It's remembered by many, even this many years later. And Siddhartha became a great sage and a great teacher and he was known as the Buddha, the awakened one. Much has been written and said about him. And it's said that when he had about one year or so within the year following his awakening as the Buddha, he returned to his uh, family home in Kapilavattu. And um, at, by that time, his foster mother was known as Maha Pajapati. Maha means great. And she was uh, held in high esteem because of her uh, status and her age. She had grown to be um, you know, a real queen. And it's said that uh, her foster son gave a teaching and that she realized uh, and realized the first stage of enlightenment, entered the stream of the Dhamma while listening to his talk. And some years after this, when he visited another time, uh, she requested permission to enter into the homeless life under his teaching and training. And through uh, quite a process, she was able to convince him with the help of the Buddha's attendant, the Venerable Ananda, to uh, undertake the homeless life, the holy life, as it's called. I'll read just a few lines from uh, Ananda, Ananda's conversation with the Buddha on her behalf. Are women able, Lord, when they have entered into homelessness, 
to realize the fruits of stream entry, of once returning, non-returning, and of arahantship, the four stages of enlightenment in this tradition. And the Buddha said, yes, Ananda, they are able. If women are able to realize the path and its fruit, and since Pajapati is your aunt and foster mother, when your own mother died, she even suckled you at her own breast, it would be good if women could be allowed to enter into homelessness. And at this time, the Buddha then said yes. And the bhikkhuni order was established there. And there's a small um, statue of Pajapati out in the lobby, at least there was. I believe it's still there in the table back towards the uh, back part there. So after she became the first nun, she was given uh, more instructions in meditation and she eventually realized, uh, attained full awakening. And it's said that she lived to be 120 years old. So I want to read her poem from the Terigata. She speaks in praise of the Buddha, expresses gratitude to her sister Maya, who gave birth to the Buddha. And she recounts her realization in the ending of the cycles of birth, death, and rebirth. This is Mahapajapati's poem. Homage to you, Buddha, best of all creatures who set me and many others free from pain. All pain is understood. The cause, the craving is dried up. The noble eightfold way unfolds. I have reached the state where everything stops. I have been mother, son, father, brother, grandmother. Knowing nothing of the truth, I journeyed on. But I have seen the Blessed One. This is my last body, and I will not go forth from birth to birth again. Look at all the disciples together, their energy, their sincere effort, this is homage to the Buddha. Maya gave birth to Gotama for the sake of all of us. She has driven back the pain of the sick and the dying. So our energy, our sincere effort here in this hall, this is homage to the Buddha. We are following in that same uh, flow, that same dedication that same beautiful intention. There are quite a few poems in this collection that are from nuns who are either uh, Pajapati's students and disciples or were otherwise connected with her. One of them that I'd like to read next is from a nun named Vadesi. And she was, uh, there was a group that accompanied Pajapati when she went to request uh, to begin the bhikkhuni uh, lineage and um, Vadesi was among that first group of nuns and she had actually helped to care for Pajapati when she was young. Um, so I, I'll read Vadesi's poem. It's quite, um, quite beautiful. <clears throat> it was 25 years since I left home and I hadn't had a moment's peace. Uneasy at heart, steeped in longing for pleasure, I held out my arms and cried out as I entered the monastery. I went up to a nun I thought I could trust. She taught me the Dharma, the elements of body and mind, 
the nature of perception and earth, water, fire and wind. I heard her words and sat down beside her. Now I have entered the six realms of sacred knowledge. I know I have lived before. The eye of heaven is pure and I know the minds of others. I have great powers and I have annihilated all the obsessions of the mind. The Buddha's teaching has been done. I think it's really powerful, her, the first uh, verse, the first line, 25 years without a moment's peace, steeped in longing for pleasure. This feeling that nothing is happening. We don't know. And we, all we can do is, is put in those drops of mindfulness and of kindness. That's our job. We don't know. We have no idea when this understanding might unfold. We might feel like Vadesi. We've been at it for a long time and it feels like nothing's happening. We have to be very careful um, if we believe those thoughts and feelings. <clears throat> There's some of the nuns there, are some quite detailed stories that uh, accompany the, the poems and, and we can get a sense for their lives. And one of them is a very famous nun. Her name was Patachara. And... Uh, her life has very close parallels to the story of uh, the teacher Deepama in more modern times. Deepama had very, very, uh, a lot of tragedy in her life and this was true for Patachara. Patachara lost all of her children and her husband through a series of tragic events. And um, she was along the road when, when this final loss occurred. She was a traveling heading back to her family home. And uh, when she, she continued on, she didn't know what to do. She had lost her newborn child, her older child, and her husband along this journey. And she uh, went to Savati, and she, when she got there, she could see the smoke, smoke in the distance. And when she got there, it turns out the smoke she saw was the funeral pyre that her uh, parents and brother were on because a terrible storm had collapsed a house on top of them. And she went mad with grief. She lost her mind with grief in this final uh, tragedy. It was more than she could bear. And she began wandering around the area in circles and weeping and wailing and her clothing turned to rags and eventually it mostly fell off. And the townspeople didn't know what to do and they were frightened and they tried to chase her away. Uh, this was near Savati, and the Buddha was living in the Jetavana Park outside the town. It's a beautiful place. It's still there. I spent most of the rains retreat there once, meditating. Um, I was the attendant to a, a monk. and um, You can still see the old city walls of Savati. It's quite amazing. You read about these or hear these things, but there's, you can see where they were. They're real. And so the Buddha was in residence there and uh, Patachara wandered in kind of randomly and, and the people were there listening to him uh, give some teachings and they wanted to chase her away. But he said, no, let her come. I, and he had a sense that she would be able to hear uh, and understand 
what he had to say. And he said to her, Sister, recover your presence of mind. And such was the, the, the power in that moment that she, she came out of her, her uh, madness. She recovered her sanity. And a very kind person gave her a robe to put on. And she told her story to the Buddha and he listened to her kindly and patiently. And he said, Patachara, it is not only now that you have met with disaster and trouble. In your many lives you have shed more tears for the dead than there is water in all the great four oceans. And he continued to talk to her with kindness and uh, offered teachings and her grief began to subside and by the end of that discourse she had realized the first stage of awakening. And she decided she would like to join the nuns Sangha and she requested ordination and she eventually became foremost in uh, known as uh, being foremost in study and understanding of the nuns uh, uh, rules of the Vinaya for the bhikkhunis, their uh, code of uh, conduct. And also uh, very learned and she um, was a very powerful figure in the community, in the nuns community. She was skilled, she was very energetic and charismatic and very revered as a teacher. Many, many students and many nuns in their poems and in other places um, express gratitude and praise of her and her teaching. More than any other nun, she was regarded highly as a teacher. I just want to read a few lines that... Um, in, in homage and praise of Patachara. This was from a nun named Chanda. Patachara guided me in leaving home, encouraged me and urged me to the highest goal. And this next one from a group of 30 nuns. We have taken your advice and we will live honoring you. A nun named Uttama. I went up to a nun I thought I could trust. It was Patachara. And another Patachara, this is Patachara Pankasta, said of her teacher, Patachara, she pulled out the arrow that was hidden in my heart. Many, many of these um, kinds of poems uh, honoring her and uh, gratitude for her teaching. So I'd like to read her poem now, Patachara's poem. It um, has a lot about her struggles in practice, but there's a beautiful description of uh, the moment of her awakening, her final awakening. When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell. I checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. This is a, a, an interesting sequence that we, we see in some of these poems. We find often in uh, when people recount their 
practice, the stories of their practice, this intense concentration concentrated her mind the way you train a horse, a good horse. And then this relaxation and then uh, some sort of um, moment, a catalyzing moment where the mind opens. In this case, it was the lamp going out that sparked her, her breakthrough, her understanding. And, you know, we have these images that if we ever have any kind of awakening, we'll be sitting deep in meditation, maybe in a hall like this, and, you know, maybe some lights will start emanating and <laughs> perhaps we'll float up a little bit. And it would be very cool, but we don't think about waking up, turning out the lights, or flushing the toilet, or washing our hands. But it was in that moment of the light going out. We don't know. We should pay attention at all times. In the case of the Venerable Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, it was in between standing and lying down. That was the moment of his full awakening. He was going, he'd been, he decided he'd been practicing too intensively in walking meditation and he went to uh, take rest, to practice in the reclining posture. And it was in between those two that the mind opened. So mindfulness in daily activities, friends. I want to read an, another poem, a short one, uh, from uh, none named Chitta, because it, uh, it again points to uh, awakening happening at a time when uh, we might not expect it in our, our images of what this might be like. And she was uh, quite elderly at this time, Chitta. Though I am thin and sick and I lean on a stick, I have climbed up Vulture Peak. That's a place called the Gridakuda Mountain near Rajgir. I spent time meditating there when I was in India. A famous place uh, where the Buddha taught from that. Though I am thin and sick and I lean on a stick, I have climbed up Vulture Peak. Robe thrown down, bowl turned over. I leaned on a rock and then the great darkness opened. I can almost see just tired and taking off the robe, putting down the bowl. And then in that relaxation, the mind opening. <clears throat> so I want to tell another uh, very famous story, which I know some of you have probably heard. This is uh, a nun named Kisa Gotami. She was also born in this town of Savati, which um, a famous area there and the Jetavana. The Buddha spent more of the rains retreat period there. Um, it's a three month, three lunar month, 12 week period annually during the rainy season in that part of the world uh, when the, the nuns and monks determined they will stay in just one place. They don't wander about. Um, and... Uh, yeah, the Buddha gave more teachings in the, from Savati, more discourses in that place than any place else. Uh, the word kisa, kisa means thin, and uh, she was probably thin because she was very poor, but she was 
quite possibly a distant cousin of the Buddha, Gotami, Gotama relationship there, the last name. She may have been uh, distantly related to him. So she had a certain uh, good family name in a way, but um, was very poor. But she was uh, married to the son of a well-to-do merchant from the area and moved in with his family, as was the custom then. But as a young wife, uh, she wasn't treated very well uh, at first. But she gave birth to a son, and and that raised her status, elevated her status, and she uh, became uh, had an honorable and, and more um, accepted place in the household. And she uh, loved her son, but she was especially attached to him because he was um, so tied into her happiness and acceptance into the family. And um, very sadly, he became ill and he died when just a young boy, when just a toddler, just starting to walk. And she, she couldn't accept that he had died. And she convinced herself that he was just sick and that if she could find the right medicine, he would, he would be able to recover. And so she went wandering about the, the town begging for help. And people could see that the child was dead and they told her this, but she, she wouldn't. They said, there will, there's no medicine. Your son has died, but she couldn't hear it. And she just left and went to the next place. And finally, someone sent her to see the Buddha, hoping that he might be able to help her uh, come to her senses about in this regard. And, and again, he was in the Jetavana Grove. And so she ran to him. She, people said, go see the, the great sage. And so she ran and she, she told him, um, showed him her child and said, can you recommend, is there some medicine, some way to help my son? And the Buddha said, yes, there is a medicine, but you have to go get it yourself. I don't have it here. And he said, go into the village and bring me a white mustard seed from any house where no one has died. And so she runs back to the town because thinking, oh, this would be great because white mustard seed was very commonly used spice and uh, she knew a lot of people would have it, and she thought, oh, I'll, the, 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 the enlightened sage will be able to, to make a, a powerful medicine from the seed. And so she goes, and people had it, and they were happy to give her a seed. But when she asked if there had been any death, anyone had died in the house, the answer was always yes. No matter where she went, there was no household where no one had ever died. The dead, she was told, are more numerous than the living. And hearing this, the, the truth hit home and she kind of came back to her senses. And she said, little son, I thought that death had happened to you alone, but it's not, it is not to you alone, it is common to all. And so she carried him gently into the forest and buried him there outside the town. And she returned to the Buddha and he asked if she had procured uh, the mustard seed, and she said, done, venerable sir, is the business of the mustard seed. And she had been so moved by uh, the teaching and the way it had been done so skillfully, and she felt very inspired. She asked if she could join the community of the nuns, which uh, she did. And she um, became fully enlightened after some time. She was known for her uh, asceticism, for her uh, renunciation. And the poem that 
is attributed to her is quite long, so I have abbreviated. I'm going to read just a few of the stanzas that are particularly um, uh, poignant, I think. The sage looked at the world and said, With good friends, even a fool can be wise. Keep good company and wisdom grows. Those who keep good company can be freed from suffering. We have to understand suffering, the cause of suffering, its end, and the Eightfold Noble Way. These are the Four Noble Truths. I have practiced the Great Eightfold Way, straight to the undying. I have come to the Great Peace. I have looked into the mirror of the Dhamma. The arrow is out and I have put the burden down. What had to be done has been done. Sister Kisagotami with a free mind has said this. That will be a great day when we can say what, what had to be done has been done. There are... Uh, um, a number of poems in this collection in the Terigata, and they're attributed to women who were living as wandering seekers, wandering ascetics at the time that they met the Buddha and they joined the nuns community. And um, I find it interesting that there was the tradition, that's a, an ancient tradition of the wandering ascetic, but um, I to realize that there were quite a number of women who were living this way, a very difficult life. Uh, one of them, um, whose poem I want to read next was called Mittakali. And she um, was fortunate enough to be present when the Buddha gave the Satipatthana Sutta discourse. And she heard that and the inspired to ordain at that time. And it's, it sounds like um, she was, her reputation before this, uh, she was known for being cross and self-centered and difficult, apparently. But uh, that changed over time. She joined the nuns community and she became very known uh, for her energy and her diligence in practice and she became fully awakened over time. And I've chosen her poem because uh, like Patacharas, it has a very uh, uh, precise description of the moment of uh, final awakening of her realization. Um, in her case, it was uh, an insight into impermanence, which we've talked about so much all week and uh, meditating on the uh, five aggregates, the elements of the mind and body, so uh, things that are familiar from this week's teachings. So this is uh, Mittakali's poem. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way, my passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then, as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short, age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. 
And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. Again, in this moment of shifting the posture, going from sitting to standing. Oh, this is another one uh, where I have a bit of a story that goes with the poem. This is a nun named Bada Kundalakesa. And she was born to a wealthy family in the town of Rajagaha. It's modern day Rajgir in India. And apparently she was very uh, passionate and vivacious and she was given to impulsive behaviors. And she was gazing out the window of her family home one day and she saw a robber being led off to his execution, very handsome young robber. He was a man of local stature and He'd become a thief and uh, she fell in love with him gazing out the window and had romantic notions about, you know, sort of rescuing him from his wayward life, I guess. And she begged her father to, uh, to see if he could secure the release of this young man. And her, her father was wealthy and influential and he, he didn't think it was such a good idea. <laughs> but he, he bribed the guards who were taking him off and, and they, they snuck him into the house and, um, you know, over some time, he, I guess he behaved fairly well because uh, he allowed them to get married and he was hoping that, you know, the young man would change. He had, you know, he came from a good family. But <laughs> their hopes were for nothing. He, after the wedding, this young man became obsessed with the wealth and especially with his wife, jewel, wife's jewelry. And so he made up a story. He said that he had promised this mountain deity that if his life was somehow spared, that he would uh, go to the, this place uh, where the deity's home was and he would make a, a sacrifice there and um, you know, do, a, do a particular kind of thing in gratitude. And so he persuaded Bada that she should dress up in all of her best and finest things and put on all of her jewelry and come with him to this place that he said was the home of the deity. And it was the top of a cliff. It was called Robber's Cliff. And apparently thieves were, <laughs> were taken there and, and thrown over the edge. <laughs> and so he, they, they go, to the, go to the cliff and he demands that she give him the jewelry and he's going to push her over the edge. And she just sees one way out. And so she said, well, let me embrace you one last time. And as, as this happened, she pushed him over. <laughs> so she... You know, I think she had the right idea and did the right thing there. <laughs> but she decided that um, she couldn't face her family. You know, she begged to have this thing happen and he turned out to not be so good and she just couldn't go home. So she decided to enter the order of the uh, Svetambara Jains. Uh, the Jain religion is, uh, predates the time of the Buddha. It was around and they uh, had a nun's order uh, prior to the, the time of the Buddha. Uh, the Buddha was uh, knew uh, one of the great Jain uh, teachers, Mahavira. So he was uh, around at that time. But this was, uh, the order goes back much, uh, much older than that, before that. 
So she entered the, the nuns and they had a little different, some different um, uh, practices and they had, um, they asked her what level of uh, asceticism and renunciation she wished to take and she wanted the most severe one and part of the initiation was rather than shaving her head, they pulled her hairs out one at a time. And, um, yeah, kind of kind of <laughs> severe there. <laughs> and apparently her hair came back, it was very curly after the shock of uh, <laughs> this. And so her name, Kundala Kesa, actually means curly hair. And um, she mastered the teachings, the practices of the Svetambara Jains and... Um, and she she loved the the life there in many ways, but she was dissatisfied. It didn't seem like it was getting her to uh, any uh, final uh, realization. So she began wandering um, a wandering life, searching for uh, teachings, and also um, because she had learned in her time with the Jains, she had studied all the texts and philosophies, and she had become very skilled at the art of debate, which was very popular at that time. And there are many accounts of people coming and challenging the Buddha and his disciples to debates, and so she was really good at it. And she would travel around and challenge others to debate, and um, the way that she would do this, she'd put a stick in the ground, and then if someone wanted to debate her, they'd come and knock her stick over. And uh, she had never wa met her match in years of wandering. She always won. So in her wandering, she eventually came to, uh, again to Savati, and the Buddha and uh, his uh, followers were there. Um, actually, Sariputta, the Buddha's, uh, one of his chief disciples was there, um, as well, well as the Buddha. And so um, she, Bada, Bada put her um, stick in and Sariputta sent some kids off to, said, go knock that stick down. And so they, uh, the debate, you know, began and, uh, Bada was uh, asked her questions first, and Sariputta apparently answered them easily. And then he stumped her with his first question in the debate. And instead of uh, answering, when she said, "Well, what's give me the answer?" he sent her to see the Buddha. And uh, the Buddha could see she was pretty smart and had a lot of potential. And he gave her teachings, and she became fully enlightened right then. <laughs> it would be nice, huh? And uh, she asked to be ordained, and the Buddha ordained her on the spot. He said, Ehi Bada, come Bada. And it's the only time other than with uh, his foster mother, Pajapati, where it's recorded that he ordained someone uh, just saying, come. And all the other cases, uh, the, the nuns, the ordination was, was with the nuns and much more of a kind of ceremonial thing, but he just said, yeah, come on. And she seems to have continued her wandering ways even after she became a, a nun. She continued to wander. And uh, there's uh, that comes out in her poem. <coughs> I cut my hair and wore the dust and I wandered in my one robe, finding fault where there was none, and finding no fault where there was. Then I came from my rest one day at Vulture Peak and saw the pure Buddha with his monks. I bent my knee, paid homage, pressed my palms together. We were face to face. Come, Bada, he said. That was my ordination. 
I have wandered throughout Anga and Magadha, Vajji, Kasi, Kosala, 55 years with no debt. I have enjoyed the alms of these kingdoms. A wise lay follower gained a lot of merit. He gave a robe to Bada, who is free from all bonds. So a last poem from the Terigata. This is um, a nun named Sukha. It's um, slightly different spelling from there's Sukha that we may have heard of as a, a, a mental factor of uh, contentment or happiness. Her name is spelled a little bit differently and it means bright or lustrous or shining. And uh, she heard the Buddha teach when she was very young and she became a, a disciple, a student of his as a, as a girl. And when she, uh, as she grew older, she became a nun when she was old enough. And um, was very diligent in her practice and became uh, enlightened quite rather quickly. And she was very skilled and very, um, apparently very inspiring as a speaker. She, like Patachara, had a large uh, following of disciples. Um, her, her ability to teach through speaking was very, um, very, very strong. And uh, in the story, it's said that she, was con she came back after her alms round and began to speak and teach and, uh, and uh, was very beautiful. And her listeners became just enchanted with her teachings. And apparently there was a tree growing nearby that was so enchanted and inspired that it uprooted itself and it went striding through the town uh, <laughs> reciting. So this poem is actually this tree's poem <laughs> praising uh, her eloquence and uh, profound... Uh, teaching. So maybe it was a tree deva, but it sounds like it was actually the tree. <coughs> what has happened to these people in Rajagaha? They are like drunks. They don't listen to Sukha's preaching, the Buddha's teachings. But the wise drink her words as travelers drink rain and never tire of their sweetness. I love that part. The wise drink her words like rain and they never tire of its sweetness. Sukha, you are light because of your bright mind. Concentrated, free of desire, you have conquered Mara and his forces. Bear this body, it is your last. So I want to end tonight um, with a more modern uh, bit of writing, uh, some more modern words. Um, not exactly a poem, and, uh, but has the same feeling as a, one of these enlightenment poems. This is from uh, a nun uh, in Thailand named Mei Chi Kao, and she lived from 1901 to 1991. So a long life, 90 years. She was a student of a very famous, uh, two very famous teachers, Ajahn Man, who was the teacher of Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Mahabua and many others, and also um, a student of Ajahn Mahabua, who I had the great um, fortune to meet on a couple of occasions when he was well into his 90s and was one of the most energetic people I've ever been around. <laughs> he was kind of amazing. He was like a dynamo 
of energy, even in his 90s. Um, generally regarded as uh, having been fully enlightened. And he said that Mei Chi Gao also was fully enlightened. <coughs> so these are some words from uh, a book about uh, her life. Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known, earth, water, fire, and wind, body, feeling, memory, thought, and consciousness, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, and emotions, anger, greed, and delusion, all are known. Sound familiar? That's kind of what we've been getting to know this week. All are known. I know them as they exist in their own natural states. But no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. In a perfectly still crystal clear pool of water, we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily, fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. The world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight, and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate, while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is, by its very nature, absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. So let's just continue to sit quietly for a few minutes and rest in the purity, the natural purity of the heart. You might touch or taste that. Thank you for your kind attention this evening and uh, have a half an hour, just a little more uh, for walking meditation and 
the Metta Chorus will gather again at nine. The Devas will be invited. So please come uh, and join if you have the energy and interest. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.